You know, one of the sad uh, and sobering realities of living in a fallen world is that inevitably you will be sinned against. Okay, and that can take on all kinds of forms. Uh, you can be insulted, you can be humiliated, you can be opposed, ignored, lied to, stolen from, gossiped about, persecuted or mistreated in some, some way. Uh, that can happen in all kinds of experiences, uh, small things like being cut off in traffic or uh, more serious things like when your neighbour sprays your um, new plants that you've planted in your garden because they don't like how high they might grow or uh, you know, missing out on a promotion at work because someone else who wanted the position went on a slander campaign against you. And then there's even more serious things again where uh, things that can actually take almost a whole lifetime to um, recover from. Okay, this is one of the sad and sobering realities of living in a fallen world that inevitably we will be sinned against. And so when that happens, how do you respond? Uh, are you someone who blows up in anger or someone who broods in anger? Are you a confronter or a stewer? Uh, or is there another way? <clears throat> and it matters how we respond because how we respond to being sinned against actually says a lot about, uh, about how we understand and whether we believe the gospel. Uh, whether we realize that we're a sinner saved by grace. And I, I raise this issue because in the two chapters that we've had read today from 1 Samuel, the backdrop is the theme of being sinned against. Uh, in both chapters, David has been sinned against, and both chapters show David responding very differently. Uh, we have uh, Nabal sinning against David and then Saul, uh, both of them are called fools, by the way, and, uh, and David responds in two very different ways to them. We can actually learn a lot from both responses that David makes. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the way David responds to being sinned against and see what we can learn um, for our lives today. <clears throat> so first in chapter 25, uh, the chapter that Andrew read, um, we can probably call this chapter What Not To Do because David responds with vengeance. And uh, you've got to remember, at this point in 1 Samuel, David is being chased by Saul. Saul wants to kill David because David was the, the king who would one day replace Saul. And <clears throat> as a result, David has been driven out into the wilderness. He can't um, go about openly. He has to be in hiding all the time. And so he's living in the wilderness. And we're told in this situation that he, he looked after uh, the shepherds and flocks of a, a rich farmer named Nabal. And uh, Nabal, it turns out, is a real um, uh, dropkick because, uh, well, it says in verse 3 that he was, um, uh, where is it? Verse 3, the, the man Nabal, uh, oh, he, he was very harsh and badly behaved. Uh, and do you know his name, Nabal? His wife mentions it later on. It actually means fool. Uh, it's the Hebrew word for fool. And you might wonder, who on earth would name their child fool? Uh, it's, that's weird, but um, the thing about names, they're funny things. You know, they can have multiple meanings. And uh, the word fool 
It can also mean wineskin in other contexts, or um, the verb form is to wear out. Uh, so who knows, maybe there was a long-standing family tradition where someone was a wineskin maker, and you know how names do that? Anyway, that's really irrelevant. Um, he has a wife named Abigail, and she is the complete opposite to Nabal. Uh, she is um, wise and um, beautiful. And that becomes the key to how the events unfold. Okay, so David, he's protecting Nabal's sheep, and shearing time comes around. That's, I guess, when the cash flow is coming in. And uh, they hold a big uh, festival, so David sends some men to go to Nabal and ask for provisions for himself and the, um, the army that he has. David has 600 men. <clears throat> now, verse 10... <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Then he says in verse 11, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who have come from, I don't know where? So that's Nabal. You know, he's the harsh um, fellow. And if you understood all of the cultural customs of the day, that is a massive insult to David. Okay, David has gone out of his way to help Nabal, to look after him, and in response, Nabal has basically said, get away, I don't care about you. Uh, huge insult. And uh, how, how would you feel if you were in David's shoes at that point? Now, what would be the kind of thoughts racing through your mind of having been treated so unfairly and insulted in such a harsh way? What would be the, the kind of feelings you would have at this point? Uh, and... Look, it is easy for us to relate to this because I'm pretty sure everyone here knows the experience of being treated unfairly. Uh, there's something about being treated unfairly that it, it sticks with you. Okay, I can still remember, I think the first time I ever experienced it when I was very little, I had this grumpy adult come and accuse me of scratching their car with a rock and, and I didn't do it. But you know, when you're little, I mean, how can you defend yourself to a big grumpy adult? It's impossible. And see how it sticks with you and it creates that, you know, emotion of outrage. Hey, that's not fair. How dare you do that? Uh, see, there's something about injustice. It cuts deep. It brings out some very strong emotions when we're on the receiving end of it. And David was not immune to that. So when he hears Nabal's insult, he just loses it. Uh, and he says to his, um, well, to 400 of the men, uh, down in verse 13, each man strap on his sword. Okay, because David is going to go and teach Nabal a lesson. And uh, the thing that outraged David so much, uh, it's down in verse 21 where David says that Nabal has returned, uh, returned evil for good. You know, David did good for him. Nabal returned evil. And so David, what's David going to do? David's going to return evil for evil. Uh, he decides that he's going to kill all of the men connected to Nabal. He's not just going to kill Nabal, he's going to kill every fella in Nabal's house. And so he, he starts down this path of destruction. And it's a path that if he gets to the end of it, if he actually completes this, it will completely undermine his integrity. 
it will completely undermine the future kingdom that he'll have because he'll have this on his record, which means that he's no different to King Saul. If he does this, he does exactly what King Saul does when Saul gets, when someone crosses Saul. Saul kills them. So this is a disaster about to happen. Okay, this changes everything. What about the king after God's own heart? Okay, everything's on the line here. But thankfully for David, God in his providence raises up a saviour, someone who will save David from the folly of his own heart. And that saviour is, of course, um, Nabal's wife, Abigail. And she hears how foolish her husband has treated David. And so she races and gets all the supplies together that Nabal should have given David. And she goes to where David is. And she makes this very long speech. And uh, we can see why earlier in the passage it's, it said that Abigail was wise. Because the speech that she makes, it's absolutely incredible. It's so perfectly suited to the occasion. And it's so eloquent. And it's theological. Uh, and what she actually does, she reminds David of the big picture that he's not seeing with the cloud of anger that he has. You know how anger does that? You, you can't actually see clearly and you do really silly things. That's David's under this cloud of anger. He can't see clearly. And so what she does is she comes along and she patiently helps him to see clearly again. And so she reminds David in verse 26 of God's justice, which means that God is the one who needs to sort out Nabal, not David. Uh, she reminds David of God's promise in verses 29 to 30. Uh, which is to remind David that he will be the king one day. And because of that, she reminds David, well, actually, she appeals to David's conscience that he doesn't want to have this bloodshed on his hands and completely undermine his future kingship. And the other thing she does, she encourages David to see her as the very instrument that God has raised up to save David. You know, to, to restrain him from doing something that is very stupid and very sinful. And by the wisdom of her words, she's able to put out that fire of rage in David's heart uh, and prevent a massive tragedy from, from happening, not only in her own home, but in David's life. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us here can see ourselves in David, though, to a degree. I'm pretty sure no one here is going to strap on a sword if someone um, wrongs you. Um, well, I hope not anyway. Um, but what's David doing? He wants revenge. Okay? He's been insulted. He wants revenge. He wants to pay back for the wrong that's done to him. And that's something that all of us uh, struggle with from time to time. Um, revenge can take on much more subtle forms than going after someone with a sword. Uh, it can be... Um, just giving someone the silent treatment. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend, um, and one day he told me, oh, Mum's not talking to me this week. I'm like, what? What do you mean? He says, yeah, I did something that annoyed her. She's not going to talk to me for a whole week. I'm like, yikes. Uh, that's revenge. Um, it can be uh, withholding affection from someone, like say from your spouse or from uh, one of your children if they upset you. Uh, revenge can be gossiping maliciously about someone, okay? out to destroy their character, or making hurtful remarks to someone, which is really just designed uh, to punish them. 
So these are just small ways of repaying evil with evil. And um, God is very clear on this um, whole matter. Uh, none of us are to take revenge. That's the bottom line. None of us are ever to take revenge in any form at all. Um, it's very clearly addressed in Romans 12, uh, in Romans 12, verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil. Uh, it goes on to say, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then it goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that's not to say that we should never seek justice. Okay? If you're a victim of a crime, of course you should seek justice. Uh, in, in some legal cases, of course you should seek justice. But that's very different to what Romans 12 is saying. Romans 12 is saying, don't seek revenge, which means don't take it upon yourself to be the one who punishes the person who sinned against you. And the reason is, is because that is God's job. It's God's job, and, and for good reason, because only God knows how to do that fairly. Only he knows all things. And God is the God of justice, which means that justice is his very nature. That means he, he can only act in, in a fair way, which means that when God punishes, it is always absolute fairness. No one could ever say to God, why have you treated me like this? No one can ever say that because God is just. He only does what is fair. And really, if, if punishment was left up to us, if, if we had to go and you know, punish everyone who, who crosses us, then we're always going to do what David does. We're always going to overreach. You know, David, he's insulted and so he wants to kill everyone. Um, but whenever we repay evil with evil, do you know what happens? Evil wins. The only way for evil not to win is if we repay evil with good. And we can only do that when we know that there is a God and that he's a God of justice and that he does sort out all injustice. He does put everything right one day. Uh, in David's case, that happened very quickly. It only took 10 days, actually, because if you look at verse uh, uh, 35... Uh, sorry, not verse 35. I'm a bit lost because this is such a long passage. Must be another one. Anyway, it's in there. <laughs> um, oh, verse 38, sorry. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And then when David heard that, he, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received. Uh, now, there is a bit of a difference there because David was the anointed king. So, you know, God had a promise that all of the king's enemies would be um, punished. Um, but God has set a day when he will make right all wrongs. Okay, so if you have been mistreated and you've still got that hurt with you, there is a sense in which you will find healing by knowing that God knows about it and that he will put that right. Uh, and we have very compelling reason to hope. Uh, we, have, we can be very confident that God will do that because he's given proof by raising Jesus from the dead. That's what Acts 17 says. So therefore we must leave all vengeance over to the Lord. Okay, We're never to get revenge. 
We're never to be the ones who punish. So that's the first thing. Now, we're not to do vengeance, but what are we to do then? We're to do mercy. Okay, we're to be people who practice mercy. And that's, that's what we see in chapter 26. Uh, because in chapter 26, this is where David um, has to deal with Saul. And uh, Saul has been hunting David. He's been intending to kill David. And, you know, there's a big, long backstory. Um, David was Saul's servant. He, he served Saul faithfully. Um, Saul got in his mind that David was a rival, so he tried to kill David. And um, so David's been driven out, of, uh, out into the wilderness. I mean, it must have been terrible to have to go through. He, David was actually married to Saul's, uh, Saul's daughter, and um, all of that was taken away from him. It was horrible, huge injustice. So that's the backstory. Now, chapter 26, it actually sounds like chapter 24 that we looked at last week, where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he refuses to do it. Okay, same thing happens again here. And yet there's lots of differences. This time, Saul turns up, he has his 3,000 troops, all with one mission, kill David. Uh, David sends out some spies. They find out exactly where Saul's army is going to be. Uh, David goes and uh, creeps up on them. He sees where Saul is in the army. Then at night time, he takes Abishai and they go into the camp, right to the center where Saul is sleeping, right there with his spear. Uh, that, you know, remember that spear that he tried to kill David with many times? And Abishai um, says to David, in verse 8, he says, um, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Uh, I'm assuming they're whispering. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. And of course, David doesn't let Abishai do that. He says, no, no, this is the Lord's anointed. You must not do that. See, David had this conviction that God was the one who put Saul on the throne. And therefore, if God has put him there, then anyone who goes against Saul is really going against God. So David would not, not let Abishai um, stab Saul. Uh, and uh, he also says in verse 10, if you look at verse 10, um, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. See, here's this idea of leaving vengeance to the Lord. The Lord will strike him or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Uh, so the point, the point of all this chapter, actually the point of both chapters, is really to show the innocence of David. That's the, the main point. It's to show that when David does eventually get the throne, that he didn't get it through deception, or through uh, grasping after power, or through murder, or anything like that, that David became the king by waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord's purposes, leaving justice in the Lord's hands. Okay, that he was the righteous king. That, that's the main point of these chapters. But in the process of making that point, what we have in this chapter is a very good model for how to deal with being sinned against. The way David deals with Saul, it's a very good model uh, for how to respond when sinned against. Because we see, with David, trusting Saul to God, you know, to let God sort out all of the injustice Saul had committed, it freed David up to show mercy towards Saul. Okay? It freed David up to not feel that he was the one who had to punish Saul, which was why he could stop Abishai from stabbing Saul with the spear. 
And you need to realise that David could only do that by faith. Okay, he could only do it by faith, by trusting in the Lord. And we know that because David, uh, he was just like us. You know, he got outraged when someone crossed him. He felt all the weaknesses that we do. We know that because of how he responded to Nabal. But in the case of Saul, he put his faith in God into practice and chose to kill the desire for revenge rather than to kill the one who was causing him all of the pain, which means he treats Saul with mercy. Now, when the topic of mercy comes up, um, sometimes when it comes up, or especially when we talk about forgiving people, uh, sometimes people can think, so what you're saying is we're just to let people walk all over us. You know, never, never respond, never get back, never pay back. People say, isn't that just the same as just letting people walk all over you? And the answer is, no, it's not. And we actually see that in the way David handles Saul. See, David doesn't feel like he has to repay Saul. But does he let Saul walk all over him? Not at all. Have a look what he does. Uh, In verse 12, uh, it says, David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it, nor did any awake. Um, God had put them in a deep sleep. Uh, Then verse 13, David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And then he called out to the army. Uh, So here's David. Is he letting Saul walk all over him? No. He actually puts distance between himself and Saul. And sometimes you need to do that. If someone is harming you, you do need to put distance between you and that person. Uh, You need to put yourself out of their reach, which is what David does. But then in verse 14 to 20, what does David do? He confronts the people who are sinning against him. He first speaks out against the army. And then that wakes Saul up, and Saul says, hey, is that you, David? And then uh, David confronts Saul, and he makes a speech in verse 18 to 20 to Saul to prove to Saul that he is not the one who has wronged David and that Saul is actually wrong to be trying to kill him. Okay, so there's confrontation. And do you realize that that's all part of responding in mercy? That's actually a merciful response to someone who sins against you. Because it shows us how to deal with them. It, it, it actually includes confronting. And Jesus, of course, unpacks that a whole lot more in Matthew 18. Uh, he, he shows us that there's a process that we can follow when someone sins against you in a more serious way. But the key that you need to realize is that when it comes to confronting someone who sinned against you, you can only do that properly, you can only do that with mercy if you first commit yourself to not trying to pay them back. Because otherwise, what will confronting be? It'll just be another form of paying them back, you know, telling them what they've done in order to make them feel really bad. Okay, we just like to clobber them with it, and that, that actually won't work. See, what, what David clearly desires in Saul is that Saul would come to repentance, that he would turn away from his sin, that he would be restored to the Lord. And see, that's to be our goal. Whenever we're sinned against, we should actually desire that the person who has done that, that they should repent, because that's the best thing for them. And so you can see it's another aspect of responding in mercy. So there you go. Mercy, it means willing to forgive, 
That means confronting in love. But what about reconciliation? If someone has really hurt you, do you have to reconcile with them? And this is where there's a lot of confusion, I think. Uh, Christians often think that to forgive someone means you must automatically reconcile. But it's not that straightforward. And you even see that with David. Uh, Does David reconcile with Saul here? Well, let's have a look. Verse 21, we have Saul um, saying, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I'll um, I'll no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes. He says, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. Which sounds really good, doesn't it? This seems to be Saul admitting he's wrong. Uh, But David is not stupid. (laughs) Uh, Saul is very good at saying sorry, and yet he never repents. Okay, how many times so far has Saul said, oh no, I've done so wrong in trying to kill David? There's been many times, and yet there's never been a heart change. He just goes straight back to doing it again. David knows that, that Saul has that record, and so he is right to keep his distance David is right to not rush into reconciling with Saul. Uh, He doesn't even trust Saul to give him the spear. Notice how he asks someone else to come and collect the spear. He really doesn't trust Saul, and he was right to not trust Saul because Saul has proved to be untrustworthy. And and that's why um, David cannot reconcile with Saul unless he sees that there's been repentance. And that's the key. So you can forgive someone in your heart, You can go to them and confront them for what they've done with the hope of them repenting. But unless there's repentance, then there cannot be reconciliation because what's going to happen? The same thing's just going to keep going on and on. David knows that with Saul and so therefore he waits to see the fruit of repentance, which is a changed, changed life, changed attitude. So reconciliation, it is the goal of mercy. It's always the goal of forgiving someone. But it can only happen when there is true repentance. Now, none of this is easy, is it? Being sinned against, having to respond, confronting out of love, none of that is easy. It's one of the hardest things we have to do um, in this world. And it is, it is a sad part of living in a fallen world. It's actually a frustrating part of living in this fallen world. But God has clearly given us his instructions. Uh, we are never to take revenge. We are to practice mercy. Which really leads to a question then. How do you do it? How do you faithfully be someone who practices mercy? Uh, where do you get the ability to do it? Now, David is a great model, Yes. But even David needed help, as chapter 25 showed. And so the best David can do is really just point to someone greater. Someone who can help. Someone who can give you the ability to be a person of mercy. And that, of course, is Jesus. So you have a look at 1 Peter um, chapter 2. Uh, In verse 22, it says about Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Do you realise Jesus is the only one who can help you in this? He's the only one who did it perfectly. The only one who showed mercy perfectly. But have a look what Peter adds about Jesus in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now what's the connection there? What's the connection between Jesus being perfect and showing mercy to Peter saying he died on the cross for our sin? What's the connection? Well, let's just think about it. See, up until now, we've been saying that the reason we can forgive people rather than punishing them is because we know there's a God of justice who punishes all sin. But that raises a conundrum. If God punishes all sin, then how can he forgive us? How can he forgive us? Because after all, we haven't lived as God wants us to live. None of us here love God perfectly. None of us love our neighbour as ourselves perfectly. Uh, In fact, many of us here, well, actually all of us here, are just like Nabal was to David. Remember the way Nabal was to David? David did all that kind stuff for Nabal and Nabal said, get lost. Do you know that's... That's how we often treat God. God does all of this kind stuff for us and so, many, so much of the time we live as though we're saying to God, get lost. You know, God provides for us. He gives us our life. He gives us the very breath in our lungs every moment. He sustains our life. He provides our needs. He does all of these things for us and what do we do in return? We ignore him. We disobey him. We take credit for things that are really his. Which means that our debt of sin with God is so big, so much bigger than we can even imagine. And because God is just, he can't just ignore that. He can't just pretend that our sin doesn't exist. He has to do something. He has to punish it. For God to be fair, he has to punish all of our sin, which means all of eternity under his punishment. Which raises the question then, how can God forgive us? How can he forgive us while punishing all of our sin? There's only one way. It's the cross. Okay, Jesus dying on the cross. That's what Peter is talking about in verse 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is why God can forgive you, because Jesus took the punishment in your place. Do you see how Jesus has shown his mercy to you by taking your own punishment? It's just, it's incredible. And Peter says that if you know Jesus has done that for you, then have a look. You can now die to sin and live to righteousness, which means you can put to death all the desires for revenge and live to righteousness. That is, practice mercy. You can be someone who forgives. You can be someone who has compassion on your offender to actually want to call them to repentance. You can be someone who even works toward reconciliation. Okay, because you know what Jesus has done for you. Ephesians 4 um, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, how just as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, there's the ability to forgive. And just one other quick application from this passage. Uh, We experience God's mercy in him forgiving us, yes? But we also experience God's mercy in the restraints that he puts into our lives. Remember how thankful David was when he finally realised that Abigail was not a roadblock in his his past, but actually a saviour figure? Remember how thankful he was that she intervened and restrained him from doing something so stupid? You know, she saved him, saved his kingdom, and he was so thankful. And the application from that is, don't resist the restraints that God puts in your lives. Okay, if you have a spouse who doesn't entertain your bitterness, who tells you to snap out of it, okay, do you see that's actually God's mercy? If you have a friend who stops you in your tracks when you're going on a tirade of gossip, do you see that's God's mercy? Okay, don't resist it. That's actually God rescuing you from you. He's saving you from your own heart. So don't resist that. Rejoice in it. Embrace it. And may God give us humble hearts to actually receive his mercy, whether that's in forgiveness or in restraint. And may he give us a humble heart that wants to practice it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are a God of mercy. Uh, We realise, Father, that that we do deserve to be um, cast away from you for all of eternity and away from your blessing, away from your love, away from your compassion. But Father, we thank you that you, uh, in your love for sinners, uh, chose to send your son to go to the cross and to take the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. We thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus bore that cost on himself. So Father, we pray that that would change our hearts so that we rethink the way uh, that we respond when when we're sinned against, uh, that we can overcome evil with good. Uh, We pray for your mercy in order to practice that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.